Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Chapter 19, we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts uh, and look at, at chapter 19 and really how, how God used Paul to take the gospel to the city of Ephesus. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, in life that you experience it uh, and you really enjoy it. And maybe you, you experience it two or three more times and you really enjoy it. But after a while, you kind of get sick of it. Uh, White Christmas is that for me. Uh, now, y'all know I was raised Jehovah's Witness. I didn't, have, I didn't have Christmas time. I didn't have Christmas movies. I never got to enjoy those things. So when me and April got married, she made sure that I experienced all of Christmas and everything it had to offer. So I had to watch all the older movies uh, like It's a Wonderful Life. How many of y'all like It's a Wonderful Life? That's a terrible movie. Uh, you should not like that movie. Uh, the only reason you like it is because it was a flop in the theaters and there's no copyright on it. Uh, you know, that man should have been punished. But anyway, uh, so I got to watch It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas, and I liked White Christmas. And every year we would watch White Christmas, and it was one of my favorite Christmas movies. But then, uh, several years ago, and you know, April spoke about this, so I don't mind talking about it, uh, she went through a, a deep depression. And during her depression, what the only thing she did was lay on the couch and watch White Christmas on repeat. She would literally watch it like a thousand times. And so now, I hate White Christmas. I've seen it too much. So every Christmas time, she's like, what Christmas? Are we going to watch White Christmas? No, we are not. We'll watch Christmas with the Cranks. We'll watch anything else. But we're not watching White Christmas. And so there are things like that where you experience it once, you enjoy it. But when you, when you have to experience it over and over and over and over and over again, it's kind of like a meal. You know, April, uh, when we were in college, uh, you know, we, we, always, we didn't have a lot of money, but we, we, we tried the best we could, and we loved vegetable soup. And so one week we came up, and we're like, we don't have a whole lot of money for groceries. We have a lot of vegetables, uh, canned vegetables, frozen vegetables. We had some stewed tomatoes and stuff like that. So I'm like, we're going to make us some vegetable soup. So we made us a huge pot of vegetable soup. And literally we ate on that for lunch and dinner for two weeks straight. You know, the first day I was like, man, this is really good. Second day, it's like, oh, this is okay. You know, by the 14th day, you're like, I hate vegetable soup. I don't want it anymore. I don't care for it anymore. Somebody's like, hey, you want some vegetable soup? No, I do not. I will not watch, eat vegetable soup and watch White Christmas with you. I just will not do it anymore because I enjoyed them at first, but I kind of got sick of them over and over and over again. The, the subject we're looking at today is almost like that. It's, it's kind of one of those subjects that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. And it's repeated so much that sometimes looking at it and studying it, you're like, man, why is God harping on this? But there's a reason that God puts so much emphasis on what we're going to look at today. Because what we're looking at this morning is really, it is, it is the core truth that we need to understand. It's a foundational principle for us to have a fulfilling, vibrant relationship with God. Uh, the teaching we're going to look at this morning, it is the foundation of every sin in your life. It's the foundation of all of our rebellion against God. And that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. And look, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, this isn't for me. I don't have any sin in my life. Well, you got some pride, number one. But buckle up. I'm going to show you how you have a lot of sin. So how do you know that? Because I have a lot of sin in my life. Uh, I, I, I struggle with things just as much as everyone else. See, God created us to love and worship and fellowship with him and love him above everything else. Above our, our children, above our spouses, above our, 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 our pursuits in life and our hobbies. God wants us to love him over everything in life. And, and what sin is, the, the foundation of sin is choosing things to love 
over God. It is putting things above God that do not belong there. See, the the story of the Bible is God rescuing us from this, this sin, this idolatry of putting things above God in our life. And see, what, what true salvation is, is a returning to putting God where God belongs in our life. It is putting God in his proper place. And not a lot of people understand that. Even believers don't really understand that. They think that coming to God for salvation is simply uh, getting a get out of hell card. And it's not a get out of hell free card because Jesus paid the price and we, he does require some things of us. We got to be a little more moral. We got to go to church a little more often. We got to give a little bit more money to the church. But if we, if we do those things and just, just act a little bit better some days and on Sundays, then, then we'll be fine. But the core of salvation is returning to love God as God, to worship God as God. See, God didn't save us just to keep us out of hell. He didn't, he saved us for us to love him and worship him. And so that's why we need to understand what we're going to look at today applies to us right now. See, Acts 19, again, it's the story of the gospel going to Ephesus. And when Paul comes to Ephesus and starts preaching the gospel, he begins challenging people's false gods, challenging their their idols in their life. And as a result, a lot of people in the city, they violently rise up against Paul. And in this story, we, we really, we don't just see how God came to Ephesus. We see how God comes to our life. When, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we live the gospel. God challenges our idols. He challenges those things that we, we hold on to and we worship when we should be worshiping Him. And when our idols and our false gods are challenged, every single one of us react just like they did in Ephesus. We react violently. Now in this story, we see these people worshiping false gods, and it's really they're worshiping statues and idols. And we see things like that. We kind of look at these people as, as maybe primitive, uh, uneducated people worshiping uh, these, these, these idols and these statues. Uh, but in, and we've said this before, in the ancient times and today, the idols that people worshiped were always a, a means to an end. Different gods promised different things. So if you wanted power, you would worship one god. If you wanted a a good marriage, you would worship another god. You wanted money, you would worship another god. So you you worshiped the different gods depending on what it is that you wanted. Uh, And so whatever it was, whether it was power or money or sex or family stability, uh, that's where you you would go and you would choose this god and you would worship this god and that God would, had promised that, hey, you worship me, you serve me, you sacrifice to me, I'll give you these different things. So that is what they were after when they worshipped these gods. They weren't really after worshipping this little god, this little idol. They were after what that God promised to give them. Now, we worship the same things that they did, just in a different way. We worship power and influence, and money, and stability, and security, and pleasure. We just, we worship in a different way. Their worship was obvious. Our worship is a little more subconscious. It's a little more, a little more covert than it was back in their, those days. But we have the same idols. We worship the same false gods they did. And just like them, when our idols are challenged, when our idols are are, are threatened, we react violently. So that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look in Acts chapter 19. Of course, again, Paul, he's going to Ephesus, and there's literally we need to know about Ephesus. Ephesus, at this time, was the wealthiest city in the entire Roman Empire. 
because Ephesus was a port city. It was the, the main port for the entire region. So if you wanted to trade or you wanted to ship things, whatever, if you wanted to make money, you had to go through Ephesus. Goods went through Ephesus. Spices went through Ephesus. Materials went through Ephesus. It was a very big, very large, very wealthy city. It was also because everything came through there. It was a very multi-ethnic city. It wasn't like other cities in the Roman Empire where they're primarily Greek or primarily Roman or primarily Jewish. Because everything came through Ephesus, a lot of different people came through Ephesus. So there's a lot of different cultures and ethnicities and a lot of different gods were coming through Ephesus. Ephesus had the world's largest temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. Uh, she was considered a goddess of, of animals and chastity and childbirth. But this, this temple was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Rome. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There was a, a statue of Diana, and it was the centerpiece of the temple. And this, this huge uh, statue of Diana was carved out of a meteorite, that had crashed to earth years before. Diana was believed to be the protector of the city. She was, it was believed that Diana was the one who granted them the prosperity that they were enjoying. So a very religious, very spiritual city. Ephesus also had the world's largest library. Uh, and so it's a very educated, very wealthy, very spiritual city. And Paul comes, and he starts preaching the gospel. But Paul's not the first one there. Paul, uh, we see here that Apollos had gotten there before Paul. And we met Apollos last week in chapter 18. So Apollos has already gone there. <coughs> He's been sharing the gospel with the Ephesians. So as all, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, the gospel is not spreading through the work of the apostles only. It's really the gospel spreading through the work of just what we consider laymen in the church, just ordinary believers who have a heart and a desire to go out and serve God. And so Apollos is there, he's preaching the gospel, and then Paul shows up. So let's look at uh, chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse number 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirit went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preached. And there were seven sons of Sivica, a Jew and a chief priest, which did also. So here's what's going on. Paul, of course, he's in Ephesus. And remember, God would empower the apostles, especially when they went to a new place. He would empower them to be able to perform miracles to prove that they were preaching the true gospel. They were preaching about the one true God. And so Paul, he's in Ephesus, he's healing people, he's casting out demons. And it, it got so busy at the time that people would take the handkerchiefs that Paul had wiped his sweat with. We've seen this and, you know, you've seen these televangelists who were like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll send you, you send me $100, I'll send you my sweat brow and it'll cure anything you have. Uh, well, Paul was doing that for real. He wasn't selling it, but people were kind of taking, oh, well, there's a handkerchief Paul used and they would take it to someone and they would cast out the demon. And so there were these, these charlatans in the area, these spiritual people who saw what was happening and thought, hey, I bet we could make money doing that. And so they would do the same thing. They would have people come to them or they would send their handkerchief and they would say, and what's interesting is they didn't say in the name of Jesus, we cast you out, but in the name of Jesus that Paul talks about. Here's what they're saying. Paul knows about Jesus, but I don't know him. But Paul had the power through Jesus to cast out demons. So if I use Paul's name, who knows Jesus, then surely I have the power. So they're trying to make money, trying to cast out demons by claiming the name of Jesus, but they don't really know who he is. Then look at verse number 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? 
So basically the demon texted back, new phone, who dis? Uh, and they're like, we know, it. We, know who, we know Jesus who you're talking about. We know Paul who you're talking about. We don't know who you are. You have no authority over us because you're just talking about these names that we know about, but you don't really know who, they're, who they are. And then look at verse number 16. This is, this is a good verse here. This is a funny verse to me. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So they're trying to cast out this demon of this guy. And the demon says, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. Let's do this. And he, he attacks these guys. And so you get this image of these guys who are trying to cast out demons in the name of Christ, but they don't know Christ. They're, they're running from this guy's house because he's attacked them. They're beaten up. They're naked. They're scared. Running through the streets. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny image, but it gives us a serious lesson we need to understand. That's not really part of my message, but I want to put it in here because it's vital truth. There in this world... There are spiritual forces at work that we don't fully understand. There is a spiritual realm around us that, yes, there are angels of God. There are, and not guardian angels, don't believe, I mean, you know, there's no guardian angels, but there are work, angels of God working. Paul tells, you know, Jesus says, hey, maybe you'll entertain angels unaware. There's also demonic forces at work in this world that we don't understand. And here, we... I don't, not just as believers, I don't think anybody, but we, especially as believers, we shouldn't mess with them. Don't joke about them. That's why I'm, I'm against, you know, things like Ouija boards. I'm not going to invite an evil spirit or a demon into my, into my home or my life because I don't know what's going on there. I'm a, I don't like horror movies that deal with, like, demonic possession. Uh, I don't like horror movies at all because, as you all know, my dad great person, took me to see a Friday the 13th marathon when I was six years old. Uh, so for the next 15 years of my life, I threw something under my bed to make sure Jason Voorhees wasn't under there going to stab me in the chest. Uh, so I, I don't like horror movies anyway. Uh, so some of the, you know, sometimes the kids are like, hey, can we watch this horror movie? No, we're not. Why? I hate them. And especially if it's like some of these demonic possession movies, I don't want to, I don't mess with them. Say, oh, you're just being silly. Maybe. But I'd rather be safe than sorry. I don't understand the demonic things that work in this world. And I'm not going to mess with them. I'm not going to tempt what's going on. That's why I don't think we should go to psychics and things like that. There, there may be no harm in them. But why risk it? Why take the chance? You know, I was watching a, a YouTube video today. And they were talking about um, before the Cold War really ramped up and we took on the, uh, the mutually assured destruction model of we're just, us and Russia is going to build as many nukes as we can and if you blow us up, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy the whole world. Uh, before they did that, uh, they would deliver nuclear bombs to their target through, you know, like bomber planes. These, these, like the B-52s, these huge, slow-moving propeller planes. And so to defeat, to protect ourselves against a Russian bombing plane, we developed air-to-air -air nuclear missiles. And what would happen is we would send a plane up and that, that plane would shoot a nuclear missile at the bombing planes and the nuclear warhead would explode in the air, destroy all the planes that were trying to bomb America but not hurt anyone on earth or on the ground was a theory. To prove this, they had five guys volunteer to stand in the middle of the desert as they detonated a nuclear warhead above them. To prove, look, they did it, they didn't get hurt, but if it were me, I'm like, I'm not risking that. You guys can do it. I'm going to be behind the lead, the, the, the lead uh, fence wall here to make sure I'm safe. Now, it worked out for them, but why risk it? I mean, this is 1950s technology. It wasn't the most reliable at the time, but it works. So same thing with demonic stuff. Like, it, it, may, it may be harmless. I may be overreacting, but why risk it? Why risk something that I have no idea what's going on? Now, moving on. Chapter 7, verse 17. <clears throat> and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus, 
And fear fell on them all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So we, we have this story going on. We have the gospel being spread, and there is a spiritual awakening happening in the city. In this, this city that is full of idols, this city that is full of false gods, this city that just has all these issues going on, there's a spiritual awakening, people are getting saved, there's revival happening. Look at verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. So it's not just people becoming aware of Christ. They're repenting of their sins. They are truly getting saved. They're turning to God. They're repenting of their sins. It's a great revival breaking out in Ephesus. Verse 19. Many of them also, which used curious arts, uh, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So these people, they're bringing, they're bringing you know, they, they practice these false arts and these, so they're bringing their, their witchcraft books and they're bringing their false idols and they're, they're bringing all the things they used to worship and they're bringing it and they're having this huge bonfire, turning away from their sin, turning from their false gods, turning from everything. And it's a great victory. And look, the Bible tells us there that the, the price of the, the books and the idols that people destroyed as they turned to God was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's equivalent to $7 million today. So people were so repentant and were so spiritually awakened by God that they, they got rid of $7 million worth of stuff they had spent money on, and some of them used it for their livelihood, and they, they are willingly saying, I'm going to get rid of all this. Yes, it costs me money, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to worship God. Incredible revival. The gospel's spreading. The gospel's changing lives. And whenever that happens, somebody always gets mad. There was a guy in the city named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. He made his money by making little idols and selling them to people so they could take them home and worship it. So when you make your living making idols for people to worship and people get saved and start turning away from idol worship, that's going to hurt your business. And it hurt his business. So he gets upset with going on, what's going on. So what he does is he gathers other businessmen together, other men who, and women who made their money off of idol worship and false worship. He gathers and says, we're going to have a meeting. We've got to do something about this. Paul's in town. He's preaching Jesus. And people are getting saved. Yippee skippy. It's hurting our business. We've got to do something to stop this, this Paul guy from hurting us anymore. So look at verse number 25. Whom he called together with the workmen of their occupation, workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Again, you, we, we've made our money, we've made our living off of idol worship. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made by hands. So he goes, look, it's not just us. Paul's going to all the area, and he's, he's telling people about Jesus, and people are getting saved, and they're turning away from their false idols, and it's really hurting our bottom line. And here's what I, I really get a kick out of. He says, you know, Paul's telling people that if you can make a god with your hands, it's not a real god. That kind of makes sense to me. You know, if you can make God, he's not God. But it just goes over their head, and so they, they think we still gotta, we got to do something about this. Now, um, we, we look at that and think, man, they're, they're arguing that the Creator can be created. That doesn't make sense. They're redefining God, but we do that all the time. We redefine who God is when the Word of God doesn't line up with what we think, with what we feel is right. I've talked to people, people who claim to be believers, who say, you know what, I know the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to salvation, no man comes to the Father but by me, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and, you know, that Christ, I know that's what the Bible says, but my God wouldn't send someone to hell just because they believe differently if they're a good, moral person. You just made yourself God. You create, and I've, heard, I've had people say that. My God. I'm like, your God? I thought we worshiped the same. I thought we worshiped God. 
So if, if I worship God, but you have your God, then you have an idol. And you've changed God to match who, what you think. So you think you, you, know, you created your own God, which means that you are now your own God. That's what's going on. These people are like, man, he's challenging who our God is, and it's hurting our bottom line. Look at verse number 27. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these, th- these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So he gets everyone uh, really angry because their livelihood's in danger. And so for hours, they are in this, this place, and there are thousands of people here. And they're, they're just for hours chanting, Diana is great. Great is Diana. we got to protect Diana. And so the city's in turmoil. People are, are upset about what's happening. They're, they're upset for Diana. There's believers. People who just got converted upset what's going to happen here. And so Paul decides that he wants to go in and talk to these people. I know they're upset. They're screaming. I'm going to go calm them down. Now, the apostles talk him out of it. They say, look, Paul, these people are mad and they're mad at you. Maybe you showing up, telling them why they're wrong, is not the best idea since they're already in a bad mood anyway. So he, they persuade him not to, and he doesn't. But look at verse number 32. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. So these people are together, and they're mad, and they really don't know why they're mad. They're just mad. Some are mad because their livelihood's being threatened. Some are mad because their God's being threatened. They don't know why they're mad. They just know, I'm mad. Paul's come in. He's threatening everything we believe. And so they're, they're angry about it. Now, finally, the crowd goes home. Uh, Paul and his followers, they live in other days, share the gospel. But this story shows us some things that we have to understand about idols, not just in their life, but in our life as well. So first thing we're going to look at is, what is an idol? Now, in our culture, when we think of an idol, we typically think of kind of the ones they have in this time, these little statues, or what they have in other cultures. And I watched a video this week from a Hindu priestess explaining why they worship idols. They're proud. Like, yeah, we have idols. We worship our idols. And they have, they have uh, the Hindu god Ganesh. He is the god of wisdom. And the remover, remover of obstacles. And if you worship Ganesh, you have this little statue of, a, of an elephant. He takes the form of an elephant. And you worship this elephant idol. Or there's Vishnu, who is considered to be the creator and the protector of the universe. And his idol, his image, is a blue guy with four arms. And if you worship Vishnu, you, you have this statue, this little idol in your house. That you worship. And we've all probably been in a Chinese restaurant where we see a little statue of Buddha. And Buddha, uh, to Buddhists, he is considered the supreme being. And they worship him as the one who has achieved true enlightenment. And he is a supreme being. So yes, those are idols that people worship. But we have idols in our lives that we worship as well, just not as openly or as blatantly as they do. So what is an idol? First thing, an idol offers you security and joy apart from God. Anything that you find security in, anything that you find joy in that is separated from God is an idol to you. Diana was considered the protector of the city of Ephesus. They believed that if they worshipped her, that she would guarantee them security she would guarantee them joy in life. So you've got, you got to ask yourself, what does that in your life? What do you have that you think, if I, if I just have this thing, if I can just keep this thing, I'll be happy. I'll be safe. I'll be secure in my life. Now, again, you know, right now, I don't know if anybody won, but I know the, the Mega Millions jackpot is like up to $1.9 billion. Just a stupid amount of money. Uh, and you know what that means? That means a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, are going to start playing that thing and praying over that thing. And look, what about you, preacher? Look, I pray, God, I don't play the lottery, but if you want to give me a winning ticket, I'll take it. 
But you know, if you want to give me the 1.9 billion, that's fine. I know he's not because if that ever happened, uh, I would tithe and then buy an island in Florida and never see y'all again. So God's not going to let me win the 1.9 billion dollar lottery. But a lot of people start playing that because they put if I can just if I can just win that lottery, then every and not even all of it. Some of I've known people like if I could just win you know a couple hundred thousand dollars, everything will be fine. All my problems will go away. I'll be happy. Maybe your idol is influence. If I can just get people to think better of me or understand or give me influence, maybe, maybe it's success. If I can just achieve this goal, then I'll be happy. Maybe, maybe it's beauty. Our, our culture today, especially with, with, with the Instagram and our young, young people, it's like, you've got to, if I can just look a certain way, if I can get my, my lips to look like Khloe Kardashian's, well, just take Photoshop and you'll be fine. But if I can just, if I can achieve this image, now, especially with our young people today, it's like, you know, influence. If I can, if I can get, you know, 100,000 followers on TikTok, if I can get, you know, so many followers on, on YouTube and I can become an, and look, an influencer is a job now. And I, 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 you know, nowadays kids can actually make a good amount of money playing video games, which infuriates me because my parents told me I'd never make a money playing video games. Now I'm like, if I'd have kept at it, I could have made money playing video games. But, you know, my video games were, you know, Tetris and Donkey Kong and things like that. Not what they play now. But people, you know, kids now, they're like, oh, if I can get influence, if I can get popularity, if I can get recognition, maybe it's money. If I just have money, then everything will be fine. If I have a, a big family, then everything will be good. If I can get a big house, then everything will be fine. And look, idols on their own, are not bad things. Money's not a bad thing. Money, well, we need money. You got to pay your bills. Got to feed your family. The church needs money to get the gospel out. Money's a good thing. But an idol is when we take a good thing and make it a God thing. I've got to have this or I won't be happy. I've got to have this or I won't be safe and secure in life. Idols are things that we think will guarantee us joy. And look, maybe for you it's marriage. How many of y'all ever seen the movie When Harry Met Sally? Not enough of you. It's a good movie. You need to watch When Harry Met Sally. But in the When Harry Met Sally, the final scene, when Harry realizes he's got to have Sally, and he runs down New York City to get to the, the, New, the New Year's Eve party she's at to tell her his love, here's what he says. He says, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. It's a romantic line. Like, oh, here's what he's really saying. I won't be happy. I won't be secure until I get you and keep you. You, Sally are my idol. And that's how we, we feel about things. Will you be happy if you don't grow any further in your career? If you never get a raise, if you never get a promotion, if you never get that title, are you fine? You say, it doesn't matter because I've got God and God's all I need. What if you never have kids? What if your, your health never gets better? What if your work never gets noticed? What if you never accomplish any of the goals you set out to do? What if, you, what if the, something is, some wrong is done against you and it's never made right? What do you have to have in your life that you say, if I don't get this, I'm not going to be happy. If I don't get this, I'm not going to be safe and secure. That's an idol. Second thing we learn about idols, idols engage our emotions. Look, this story shows us when idols are threatened, people get violent. Idols are the lifeblood of our lives. What is the protector in your life? That idea, that thing, that if, you, that if, you, if I lose this, my life's over. If I lose this, then then I have nothing else to go for. My, my security is gone. My safety is gone. My, 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 my happiness is gone. If you lose a good thing, you're sad. But if you lose a God thing, then your life is devastated. Our deepest emotions are connected to idols. Worry, fear, anxiety, anger, hatred, 
unforgiveness. All of these are tied to our idols. When you can't forgive someone, it's because that they have hurt your idol and they are attacking your idol and you can't forgive them. And ironically, idolizing something ultimately keeps you from enjoying it at all. If you idolize something that you, you, can't, you can't enjoy it because you've got to protect it. You know, if you don't, uh, when you obsess over things, you, you can't enjoy them because you depend on them for joy. If, if marriage is your idol, then eventually you're going to become a, a terrible codependent spouse. If, if family is your idol, eventually you're going to become a, a controlling parent. You'll go from a sweet, loving mother to a dominating, obsessive, controlling mother because you've got to keep your family looking the way it's supposed to look to everybody else so everybody thinks you're happy. You know, people with a lot of money typically aren't happy because they obsess about keeping their money or, or getting more of it. A good thing became a God thing and robbed them of their joys. Third thing we notice about idols, number three, idols need to be protected. Demetrius said, we've got to protect Diana. We can't let them throw Diana out, which is ironic because Diana was supposed to be the protector of the city. She's supposed to protect them. But they're forming this, this mob to protect their idol. You always protect your idols from being taken away. You hide them so no one finds them, so no one can root them out and attack them. Success, money, love, kids. If anything threatens them, you get angry and you protect them at all costs. If your image is your idol... You'll protect what people think about you by lying about people, by lying about yourself, by backbiting, so people think good of you. This brings us to the fourth thing. Number four, idols demand sacrifice. The whole, whole system in Ephesus was built on sacrifice. You would sacrifice to an idol, to a god, to make that god happy, and then the happy would, would give you what you asked for, and then you'd have to continue to sacrifice to continue to make them happy. You know, idols say, if you, wanna, if you want me, if you want to keep me, then you have to sacrifice to me. So when, when your idol is success in business... And you've got to be the most successful person at work. You've got to be the best salesman. You've got to run the best business. What you're going to do is you're going to lie, cheat, and steal to get your idol. You are sacrificing your integrity. Now, if your idol is money, then you'll do the same thing. You'll, you'll do hurt whoever you have to have to get that money. Now, again, I've heard a lot of people say, Bible says money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Because when you love, when money is your idol and you have to have it, you'll lie, you'll steal, you'll, you'll hurt people to get it. If image is your idol, you'll lie, you'll hurt people to, to keep people thinking good about you. Sacrificing your integrity for an idol. If love and affection is your idol... You're going to sacrifice your morality to get it. You know, pornography is an idol. I mean, I want you to listen here. This is a big issue we don't talk about in churches. We're going to talk about it for a little bit. I have my notes. We're going to talk about it. Pornography is not a sin. It's an idol. And you worship that idol. And look, I'm not ignorant enough to sit here and think, oh, we're a good group of Christians. We all go to church on Sunday mornings. Nobody struggles with it. Baloney. According to statistics, statistics, here we go, 77% of every man in here, of all the many, 77% of you struggle with pornography. I'm not saying looked at it once. If we're talking about you've looked at it, that's 99% of you. 75% of you struggle with it on a weekly basis. Ladies, not, not going to let you out off the hook. According to statistics, 63% of you have the same problem. It's an idol, and we don't talk about it. And when that is your idol, you are sacrificing your family, your morality, your integrity, your walk with God to that idol so you can get a little bit of pleasure for a little bit of time, and it never brings true joy. It's destructive every 
idol is. And it's an idol because you don't find your satisfaction in God or the satisfaction in your spouse God has given you, so you look for it on the Internet. You look for it everywhere else, and you sacrifice so much for that idol. When you sacrifice to an idol, it always wants more. It's never satisfied. Wants more time with your family, more health, more of your integrity. The ancient gods required child sacrifice. And we look at them and think, oh, that's appalling. How could they do that? But we sacrifice our children to our idols all the time by ignoring them, by not raising them in the nurture and admonition of God, by sacrificing time with them or our, our image with them. We sacrifice idols, demand sacrifice. Fifth thing we want to notice about idols. Number f- uh, five, idols are demonically influenced. We see that in Ephesus. Wherever idolatry is rampant, so are demons. Again, you cannot forget that there are spiritual forces at work in our world, and Satan is active and working. Bible says he is as a roaring he is constantly circling you, seeing where you're weak, where he can attack you, where he can he can come in and destroy your life. And he's done a great job of cloaking himself. He hasn't come to us as a red, you know, red-horned uh, creature with a tail and a pitchfork going, hey, he never does that. Look, honest, if Satan appeared to us in his true form, 99.999% of us wouldn't recognize him as Satan. Say, so how do you know that, preacher? Bible says he's beautiful. He's appealing. He's enticing. He got Adam and Eve to sin looking like a snake. I know he's not coming to me as a snake. He comes to me as a snake. He's getting killed. I'm going to blow his head off with a shotgun. If he's a poisonous snake, he's a black head, black snake. I'll kind of scoot him away. If he's a cop, the other couple weeks ago when there was a snake in the gym, luckily it was a black snake. Thank Jessica was man enough for me to scoot it out because I'm like uh, I guess that snake lives there now. Uh, so she was she was man more man than me to get that snake out of there. And I was talking to Danny Wade about it. He goes, "What if it was a copperhead?" I'm like if it was a copperhead, I'd have burned the building to the ground to get rid of it. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Satan, when he comes to us, he's enticing, he's alluring. He doesn't come and say, "Hey, why don't you why don't you click on that image and ruin your family?" Why don't you watch that video and destroy your morality and ruin your marriage and have your kids hate you because you hurt their mom or, again, because you hurt their dad? Because you were looking for things that, that you shouldn't... He never comes... He just says, hey, they're not giving you the love you deserve. They're not giving you the affection you deserve. So why don't you find it? It's okay. Find it here. He tells us the same thing he tells Adam and Eve. If you do that, you'll just, you'll just be like God. You will become... Your own idol. So every time we worship idols, we are being influenced by Satan. So that's what we know about idols. Number two, real quick here, I want to finish up. How does the gospel confront our idols? Paul confronted the gospel, the idols, by preaching the gospel uh, and had three main points. Number one, the true God gives life. He says, God is not a God made with hands. He is the creator of everything. His love is more faithful than idols. His love is more fulfilling than idols. His promises are more secure than any idol you can have. His presence is more life-giving than the comforts that this world has to offer. His future is more fulfilling than any family or any affections or any the better than the praise of man that you can have. In Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people... Have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no, no water. Cisterns were wells. So he goes, The first sin is against God. They forsook, he goes, I'm the fountain of living water. And they got rid of me to dig wells for themselves that had no water. When I was offering all the water to them freely. So the first sin, when we idol worship, is we, we, we forsake God. We, we forsake our, uh, the God that created us to love Him. The second sin is we deprive ourselves of true joy. 
That's just true joy is found in a relationship with me. When you forsake that to worship idols, yeah, you're forsaking me, but you're, you're hurting yourself. You're, for, you're ignoring, you're depriving yourself of true joy. The true God gives life. Second thing we know about idols, Paul talks about, is the true God doesn't need protection. Diana needed protection because she's just a false idol. Psalms 18 says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my pillar, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. My high tower, I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I will be saved from my enemies. David says, when I need protection and safety and security, God gives it to me. I don't have to protect him. He protects me. Psalms 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom will I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom will I be afraid? Look, I don't need to obsess about money, about love, about success, about what people think about me, because God has promised to take care of me. God has promised to provide for me. God tells me, doesn't matter what people think about me, my record's in heaven and my record's on high. I don't, and look, sometimes... April's, you know, told me sometimes me not caring what people think about me has hurt me a little bit. Because honestly, she's like, well, what if they think? It's like, I don't care what people think. Because you know why? I know my heart. And God, more importantly than I know my heart, God knows my heart. So you may get mad at me because I say something or do something, you know, but I'm like, but God knows my heart. God knows what my intentions are. God knows what I'm trying to, and God's got my record. So the whole world could think bad about me. Guess what? They thought bad about Jesus. God knows who I am. I don't got to obsess about it. I find all that I need in God. I can trust him. I can rest in him. And I find protection from the things that threaten me. He protects me. I don't got to protect him. Third thing we notice and final thing is the true God offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Idols, money, success. They say, if you don't do enough to obtain me, if you miss out in getting me and making me happy, then I'm going to make you miserable. Jesus says, you, you're going to fail me. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall short. But it doesn't matter. I still love you. I still died for you. I still rose again for you. And I still want to have a relationship with you. You failed me and I cursed myself for you. Other gods say, if you fail me, I'll destroy you. Jesus says, you did fail me. And I loved you in spite of it. I loved you in your sin. Romans says, while we were yet sinners. It doesn't say, while you know, we were sinners, but Jesus made us get real good and become great, holy, moral people. Then he died. No, he goes, no. While you were a failure, a sinner, a wretch against God, he loved you enough to die for you. He sacrificed himself for you. I love the, the book of Hosea. Uh, if you've never read it, it's a wonderful, it's a, it's, a, it's a confusing, but it's a wonderful book. But the book of Hosea, it shows Israel as an unfaithful wife who gave herself away to idols. God comes to Hosea and he gives Hosea a ministry. And Hosea's ministry was to marry a prostitute who was going to cheat on him over and over and over and over again and eventually leave him. That's his ministry. I'm glad didn't, God didn't give me that. That's not my ministry, thank God, thank the Lord. But he, okay, Hosea, you're going to marry this prostitute, and she's going to cheat on you and cheat on you and cheat on you and cheat on you, and you're going to love her anyway. That was his ministry, and that's what happened. He marries her. She cheats on him again. And it's a picture of God loving Israel, but Israel continuing to cheat on her, him with adultery and, and idolatry and all this other stuff. And eventually, Hosea's wife, Gomer, again, not only marry a prostitute who's going to cheat on him, her name's Gomer. Uh, so Gomer gets taken into, uh, she basically gets sold into sex slavery. You know what Hosea does? He goes, oh, well, tough luck. No, no, no. He tracks her down. He sells everything he has to buy her out of the slavery she got herself into. He sacrificed for her. And that's what God does for us. God says, you're, you got yourself in this mess, but I'm going to give of myself to get you out. We don't sacrifice for God. God sacrifices for us. 
You know, idols are just as prevalent in our society, in our lives today, as they were in Ephesus when Paul was there. Now, they're harder to see because they're there. I read this book uh, by Frank Perietti, uh, Piercing the Darkness. Have, have anybody ever read that one? It's a great book. Gave me a, a different idea about the spiritual battle. Because in, in his, this thing, and again, I can't, I can't tell you if it's true or not, but his, his whole thought was, it's a, it's a Christian fiction book, so it's really good. Uh, but basically, he gave this pastor eyes to see what people struggled with. So if someone had, uh, if they struggled with lust, they had a little demon of lust on their shoulder. If they struggled with gossip, they had a little demon of gossip that was controlling them. Now, I'm not going to go to your house and go into your living room and see your idol of, of, of pornography on the counter, your little idol of, of self-image, your little idol of money that you... Ba- I'm, we're not going to see that. But we got them. They're harder to see because we don't have little statues, but they're there. And just like in Ephesus, they will destroy you. They will lie to you. But the gospel destroys the idols in your life because we realize... That what we truly need, we find in Christ and God alone. The gospel, yes, is for salvation, but it's also for our walk with God. God did for us what we couldn't do and we wouldn't do because he loves us. And he still does that. He still gives us what we can never get from anything else. So getting rid of idols is returning God to the place that he belongs in our life, returning God to his place as God. So we got to ask ourselves this morning, what idol do I have that i got to get rid of? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to come together, to, to open your word. And Lord, yes, we see these idols in Ephesus. And Lord, it's... it's Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.